You're listening to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry. And for this episode, I'm joined by a return guest, Mr. Matanya Gladden. We will be discussing where politics and race meet. Here we go, Montagne. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me again. Yes, uh, please, Brother Julian. Uh, thank you for having me again. I'm looking forward to uh, another great discussion. And again, I just enjoy your podcast so much. I think I've become your number one fan. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. So I'm going to start this conversation off by sort of um, digressing a little bit from or a lead off from uh, my previous podcast, which was a rant of mine uh, about various issues, political, race, etc. And the focus of this conversation tonight is going to be, you know, where politics and race meet. And something I mentioned in my last, you know, my podcast that I want to start off with that, you know, just came across it again. Um, and it was a definition of electoral college. And it said, why does this process exist? The framers of the Constitution established the Electoral College in the Constitution to forge a compromise between those who wanted the president to be elected by members of Congress and those who wanted the president to be elected by a popular vote. And if you look at that description, that, you know, it, it is amazing because it is way deeper than what it seems like on the surface. We know that the minority represent the majority in this country. And if we go by popular vote, which I think should simply be the way, I mean, the Electoral College, I understand what they were aiming to do, but I've always seen it as another way of oppression because if you go by the popular vote, I think um, many feel that one party may dominate you know, the, the government for years. But I, I, I don't see how you tie the word democracy in with electoral college when, and tell me at the same time that every vote counts when someone can have the popular vote and yet lose the election. I mean, you know, by millions, millions of people, three, four million more in this country can vote for someone and yet they lose the election. So my first question to you as we, as we start this discussion is, you know, kind of uh, give me your thoughts on the current state of politics and, and this whole Democrat versus Republican environment. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. repeat that part of the question. So, so I wanted to know, you know, um, your thoughts about the current state of, pop, of politics and, this, you know, and in terms of, um, us as a okay. people, you know, the, the Democrats versus right. Republicans. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, you were talking about the Electoral College, and I, I didn't know if you wanted to expound on that. But the, uh, and we, we know that, you know, that this is not a democracy, it's really a republic. Uh, so we, uh, it will never be done by the popular vote. Um, 
because of the way the electoral college works and, uh, you know, each state having uh, two votes for, to represent each uh, representative in the Senate and, and, and the uh, Congress House of Representatives. So it's never going to be reflected or represented by the uh, popular vote uh, necessarily exclusively. Um, but there's a lot of debate on getting rid of that electoral college. So hopefully that will prevail at some point. But um, in terms of the one thing I, I would like to expound on in terms of the, the two parties, you know, the because even tonight during the convention, I've heard uh, uh, a couple of the speakers talk about how, you know, it was the Republican Party was the party that freed us, you know, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, with uh, Abraham Lincoln and all that. Um, and the majority of uh, African-Americans were, did belong to the Republican Party up until around the uh, Great Depression. Um, and that's when, and in fact, during Reconstruction, you know, then that's when we were really starting to prosper, earn property and all that. And all of this was under the Republican Party. And so, you know, but today's Republican Party doesn't reflect the party of Lincoln, obviously, but it also didn't reflect the party uh, in the, the antebellum South, because what happened is that, you know, we had over 2,000 representatives in, in Congress and, and throughout, throughout uh, the political landscape throughout this country uh, during Reconstruction, but we were becoming so empowered that it was disenfranchising uh, uh, whites in this country. And so therefore, uh, especially given that we were considered property being enslaved by them. And so once they lost us as their property, then they lost their value as a group, it, uh, particularly in the South, because you know who else was gonna work those fields like we were doing? So, um, so ironically, uh, they um, they would receive reparations. They were paid up to three hundred dollars uh, per so-called slave master uh, to um, to compensate for the loss of their property. Us, uh, three hundred per slave, I believe. That's what the figure was, and that was. Um, so that that became a problem, you know. So all of the gains that we were starting to make uh, during Reconstruction, uh, we lost it. So this is how you get a Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is, you know, we had a Black Wall Street. We had the same thing in Durham, North Carolina. We had the same thing in in Florida um, uh, with uh, Rosewood, and and we have communities all around this country, including right here in New York City, where uh, you know we had what is now known as Central Park, that was Seneca Village. Um, but through eminent domain, that was taken away from us. We were owning and operating our own businesses and communities in some of the, the, the most uh, 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 coveted areas of this country at one point during Reconstruction. And again, this was all under the uh, Republican Party. So there was a natural affinity to uh, that party um, uh, as a result of that. However, during the re 
Great Depression, then everyone started losing everything. Not only did, well, going back to when we were, uh, uh, when the white slave masters were compensated, then they not only got monetary reparations, but we lost the property that we had taken over uh, uh, during that time. So we were displaced and we had to pretty much fend for ourselves. And so a lot of our population, including my own father, had to return to these former plantations and work as sharecroppers. So, uh, which was just slightly above, maybe a penny above being an actual slave. Uh, so we had this relationship with the Republican Party, but then when things started turning around during the Great Depression, then it was Franklin D. Roosevelt who came up with the New Deal and all kinds of social programs that could help uh, uh, resuscitate the economy. And so while everyone was so desperate and impoverished and everything, of course, you know, like they say, when white folks catch a cold, we, we, we get pneumonia. But as a result of these social programs that were really designed to help white folk that couldn't handle the type of uh, uh, abject poverty that we had lived it with for hundreds of years in this country, they were committing suicide and they couldn't handle it. So what happened is that when that program started helping us as well as them, and then we started a new relationship with the uh, um, with the Democrat Party, and that was basically because the Democrats, the, you know, under the under the Republicans and all that, then the KKK was founded during Reconstruction, and you know there was a lot of envy and stuff, and so then you went from our enslavement to the Jim Crow era and all that. So the Democrat Party conveyed themselves as one that were sympathetic to our needs at the time. And uh, so we just continued developing an affinity. But up till like maybe around 1960, we, the majority of us was still belonged to the uh, Republican Party. That really changed dramatically after the uh, presidential uh, campaign of uh, Barry Goldwater uh, when he ran against Nixon. And he ran as the current president, uh, you know, just a law and order type, you know, uh, uh, racist, openly racist, uh, conservative. And, and, and we, as a people, always had conservative values. And, you know, we were against abortion. We were against... Uh, uh, adultery and fornication and, and some of the because we were so so indoctrinated with our religion that was that we adopted when we uh, were enslaved because the only thing we could read was the Bible. So ultimately, we had to get away from having that alignment with the Republican Party or the Conservative Party because it was counterintuitive for us to continue to put out those type of conservative values above the blatant racism that was represented in the policies that Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon and later on uh, Reagan 
were uh, espousing and actually put into place. So it was under a Democrat that, you know, Trump always talks about he was, he's done more for the African-American community than anyone. But uh, I would put the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the, uh, affirmative action, all that stuff that happened under the Johnson uh, administration. I, I would put, put that against anything that uh, uh, Trump has done. So now, yeah. all right, let's go yeah. on. Yeah, that is, that is, that is a good uh, opening to this political climate. So we're going to delve in a little deeper now because, you know, every election you always hear, and I've heard this when uh, President Obama first ran of, of, of how um, it's the most important election of, of, of our lives. But for some reason, at least I feel this way personally, I'm sure many people do that this election trumps any other election in our um, generation, our lifetimes. And, and so this is kind of a twofold uh, topic or question I want to get your input on. And that is the racial implications of this election and why black and brown people, minorities especially, who are looking for change must vote for change even if the candidate for change is not their first choice. Well, I, I definitely concur with that. I believe that, um, uh, you know, whether we accept it or not, this is a, effectively a two-party system that operates in this country. We represent, as African-Americans, we represent 13% of the population. Uh, we're outnumbered uh, by the Latino uh, population now. Um, so in order for us to advance any of our ideologies or preferences, proclivities, uh, uh, when it comes to politics, um, then it, it calls for a coalition. And that's why I'm glad you include uh, the brown community in this discussion as well, because we just numerically do not have the numbers to do this by ourselves, to affect the type of change that we want to gain equity and, and um, uh, you know, uh, to advance some of the, from, uh, uh, from where we had already begun to make progress, to continue advancing from that point, it has always required a coalition. There were Jews, there were women, our, you know, Martin Luther King said an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And nothing exemplified that more than the civil rights movement of the 60s, because it was that type of, uh, of coalition building that allowed for, especially after the, uh, the march across uh, Edmund uh, Pettus Bridge, uh, and the world could see, not only this country, but the world could see the atrocities that were uh, 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 used against uh, people like John Lewis, the late John Lewis and Martin Luther King and all, all of their cohorts. They could see that for themselves, and it compelled Johnson to meet with Dr. King and to meet with John Lewis and Mega Evers and, and all of these civil rights giants. It compelled them to... Uh, open up the Oval Office and have discussions on what 
can the administration do to affect change? But they were also joined, you know, that March across Edmund Pettus Bridge included rabbis. It included a diversity of, of, of people that, that uh, participated in that. And this is what we have to do now because we're even more diverse now. In every march, every rally, that I participate in, that you see on TV, and that you participate in, you can see the diversity that's there. And sometimes it's even predominantly other than Black that are represented in these, these things. So we, we need that type of coalition building. And so to get back to your question, the main thing is that we can't give these candidates those type of ultimatums that if you don't represent everything that Bernie Sanders, Sanders espouses or Elizabeth Warren, who was my candidate of choice, uh, then we'll just risk losing the election like we did in 2016. And we see the catastrophic, catastrophic effect that it has had on us as a people. When Trump says, uh, what have you got to lose? When he said that back in 2015, when he announced this campaign, then we see what we have to lose. The 14% uh, 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 unemployment that we are at now, he used to boast about us having the lowest unemployment numbers uh, in, in modern history. Uh, yeah, it was down to like 6%. Uh, now, with us as a population, as Black folk in particular, that is about 14% now, while the rest of the nation is at like 10.2, according to the last stat uh, uh, earlier this month. So we're losing jobs. The, a disproportionate amount of us, black people, have died from this coronavirus. We are four times more likely to be hospitalized than white. We are, I think it's 2.6 times more uh, likely to, to have been infected. And we have a disproportionate amount of deaths compared to whites and compared to anyone else. So if you even look at the 180,000 deaths from coronavirus, preventable deaths, I might add, uh, the majority of those are black and brown people. And this is something that if you factor that into that whole question of what do you have to lose, we can quantify that through this COVID virus. We can quantify that through what's going on with race relations right now and vigilanteism. We can quantify that with the unemployment numbers. Uh, and all of this is subsequent to policies that have been made by this administration, where police officers feel more emboldened to uh, 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 disavow their own policies and law, where uh, employers are less inclined to hire us because of the demonization that is espoused and projected uh, through the Trump-controlled Fox TV that shows us as just looters and rioters as opposed to focusing on the actual shooters that just shot two people yesterday and was given a bottle of water from the same cops and allowed to walk away from the scene and return from Wisconsin to his home state of Illinois and didn't get arrested until today after a lot of pressure. Um, so we see the, the double standard, the hypocrisy. We see that, that the over-incarceration the over of us is continuing to climb um, because 
the, the, the Sean King t- speaks to this all the time when he says, when you look at the safest communities in the country, it's the ones with the fewest amount of police. And the reason why they have, they don't require as many police is because those people in those communities have jobs. They have better health care. They have better school structure. Their, their whole institution in, within their community supports uh, their survivability and, and prosperity. But we don't have that in these communities that have such high crime crime numbers. Yeah, so. yeah. I um and 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 you know it's it's amazing because as I asked you the question, as I was listening to you, something else came to mind that I wanted to mention, and that is you know when it is so so visible, the racism is so visible in terms of even the candidates, because, you know, here we have a, situ- we have a situation where when, when, when President Obama was president, I remember reading many different articles where people came out and made really nasty personal attacks on Michelle Obama that had nothing to do with policy. And it's amazing how when you have people fighting for real change and, and people are looking at the, 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 the policies of, uh, um, of, of a candidate and what they've, you know, what they've voted for, what they've done in their political career. And you go to see what the comments are, on, let's say, on social media. And the, the, the racists, the people who, who can't make an argument about policy, they, they stoop to a level of making fun of people's looks and, and calling them names and, you know, these derogatory remarks that, you know, that they, they start these personal attacks that have nothing to do with what's important to this country. And, you know, and it's, 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 it's not only sad, but it's, it's so blatant because, you know, you can say, well, you don't like you know, the, the, um, the Democratic candidate, you don't like Joe Biden's policies. You can say, well, I don't like something that he did when he was vice president. Kamala Harris, you can say the same thing, but that's not what I'm reading. You know, I mentioned in one of my podcasts that I saw this thing on on um, Facebook where they 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 dressed him up, um, Biden and and Kamala Harris in costumes and in on you know, this graphic, and they said the honky and the hoe, you know, and and all yeah. of those things are not only so necessary, but they don't realize, you know, how how racist they are, how how the implications of of what they're saying, and and like you said, unfortunately, this. This administration just doesn't seem, you know, to to care about you know this direction of of hatred, hatred and racism that's just been able to to fester and grow, you know, over the last few years. And and so you know, I I pose that question to you because I think that since we know that um, you know we need we need you know depending on which districts or whatever we need overwhelming votes. And we need a coalition, like you said. You know, we need to um, join together. Although everyone who feels, everyone in this country who is not racist, so anyone in this country who wants change, anyone in this country, I'll even go this far, who is racist but still wants change, I don't care who you are, need to vote for change. And like you said, there's a two-party system so that that only means one vote. And I can tell you something, you know, I say this to my audience. 
I have friends of all different race, creeds, and colors, and I repeat this constantly because I've seen some of my own friends that I've known for many years who are not black and brown. Um, they haven't condemned me because of the podcast and because of how it's spoken. We are an empowering movement for change, but I've seen them go silent you know, towards conversation with me. And, um, you know, anybody who knows me know that, you know, that I am who I am and I have friends of all race, creed, and color, and I treat them all the same. And because of where, I, you know, just my uh, specific upbringing, I'm sure there are many like me, you know, honestly, I, I mean, I honestly can say in terms of friendships and in terms of, uh, of, of loyalty and in terms of, tr you know, true, true friendship, the color doesn't matter. You know, I've got friends I can call on and they at any moment of, of different colors and they will come to my, you know, to my aid right away. But yet I've seen a lot of people who are the friends who I've known for decades. Um, and I mentioned this before in the previous podcast to make comments that just make me wonder that when they left my presence every time, what was they through their true uh, feeling about me? You know, because you know, you can change a lot of things about yourself, but you can't change the color of your skin. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to see their comments, you know, it, I don't know how they, how they feel when I am their friend, I am a black man and they make a racist comment towards someone else. And I don't know if in their narrow minds, they feel like that comment, you know, should be taken just for that racism against that specific person but you know you and i are cool so it's not meant for you no you know and, I, and i'll tell you that when i started the podcast and i had the first few episodes and people like yourselves came on that that you know really um are part of this movement and have a, an understanding of history and you know even you know history of every race and, and especially black and brown people um, the more I got into it and recognized what needs to change and how honest we need to be with ourselves, the more I got to a point where this podcast is about empowerment. It's about a call to action. It's about change for equality. And I couldn't care less which one of my friends don't like it or not. It took, a, it took a, 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 some effort to get there because, you know, you, you don't want to believe certain truths until you have the, the, you're faced with the challenge, and then you understand the truth. I just wanted to you know, sort of say that to my audience, because this podcast is about uplifting. It's not about, you know, I do other topics of mental health and culture and all of that. It's not about one race. It's about equality. It's about, you know, the equality for all. It's not just about black and brown. I also do episodes on equality for women, which I've done. Um, and so it, it, the understanding is we're looking for fairness and the fact that they hear me or they ha I have so many episodes on the equality for black and brown people simply means that something is really wrong. That those, you know, us, we have to keep fighting when, you know, many others don't. And, you know, that's sort of my segue into, I know that you've been to a lot of these rallies. You've been to a lot of the, you know, everywhere, I think everywhere they, paint, they painted the Black Lives Matter uh, symbol on, on the on the streets. I think you've made it your your goal to go to each one. And so when I think about that, what you mentioned about the coalition and the need for coalition, in your from your perspective, what role can the Black Lives Matter movement play 
to ensure that we secure that coalition you know, uh, uh, to the best of their ability, especially since we don't want another popular vote and still lose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Thank you for the question. The, um, I think, first of all, the, the, the Black Lives Matter organization in particular, uh, you know, one of their uh, members um, just got elected I believe to uh, the House of Representatives um, recently, um, but the um, uh, in terms of the movement, the movement, and again, the organization has a very specific, laid out uh, agenda platform. Everything uh, you can go to their website and see all the bullet points and stuff. So that they they have leveraged what they want to see happen in terms of police reform, uh, defunding, uh, criminal justice reform, all that kind of stuff. They have outlined uh, very specifically. And uh, they were doing this way back during the uh, 2016 election. You know, they, they was um, trying to leverage that with uh, Hillary. But in terms of the movement, because as we've often discussed, the movement is much larger than the, the original organization. In terms of the movement, I think that the movement is already having an impact on uh, every facet of life. Uh, we, 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 look, we look at, you know, my, my old professor, Dr. Uh, Leonard Jeffries from City College, uh, he used to use this, what he called the pyramid analysis. You know, because on one side you have your culture, the base of the pyramid, you have your uh, uh, economics, and the, the other side you have your um, uh, politics. And the three of those things working together produces your synthesis. And so your politics, your economics begets your politics. And the conversion of those two uh, produces the culture. The, the, the actual complexion, the, the, the ideological persuasion uh, of, of the society. And what happens is that we are affecting the economics right now in sports. You know, the NBA hasn't played, had not played for like three months before they opened this bubble. And now players just walked out three games were suspended today because the players are protesting and on the court, you know, in the bubble, then right on the court side, it boldly proclaims black lives matter. Uh, all the players are wearing on their jerseys, uh, the names of victims or any other part of the, uh, uh, struggle that they support. These things are having economic ramifications. The, the the sports industry is a multi-billion dollar uh, industry, as you know. And, you know, between the WNBA, the NBA, uh, football, and all of these sports, today the NBA players walk out. Uh, that led to the Milwaukee, whatever their baseball team is named, they said, we're not playing. Uh, we're suspending our practice or whatever. The, the WNBA that we're joining our NBA colleagues and we're not going to play. That has commercial and economic implications that no tweet can erase. 
that no convention speech can erase. It's having uh, uh, an impact that effectively is a boycott. And the damages are instant. Uh, they're losing television rights. They're losing Kenny Smith from uh, TNT Sports. He, he walked off the, the set today, leaving uh, Shaq and, and, and Charles Barkley there on the set. Uh, it's having ramifications because it's compelling these people to have a conversation. We're not just going to acquiesce to your silence. We, we are demanding you to take a side, to choose a side right now. And that's what the movement is compelling on the consciousness of this, this society, that you have to pick a side. You're either down with us, and like I said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So you know, the reason why women joined the movement in the 60s was because their uh, voting rights were suppressed. Their right to, uh, the, the women didn't even have the right to smoke cigarettes until uh, you know, the, the turn of the century. Uh, There were so many other policies that this country had that denied equality, equal rights to other ethnicities, the Jewish community. So this is when you had, when the Equal Rights Commission came up with, you know, that they can't discriminate against race or color or creed or sex and all that. That is because everyone else piggybacked off of what we were trying to achieve for ourselves. And it benefited them even disproportionately more than it did us. So there is a consequence, a positive consequence, uh, for them to uh, coalesce with us. But there's an economic consequence that is devastating this country right now. It's affecting GDP, it's affecting everything because the pandemic. Everything, people have time to stay home and look at the news. And, and you know, they, they, they're losing their homes and, and getting evicted and this and that and their health and all that. And it, it's, all of these maladies are adversely impacting us more. But at the same time, if I can't go to work, it's because your business isn't open. It, it isn't operating. So you're losing money, too. So this is not advantageous for you as an employer, just like it's not for me as the employee. So it's best, it's prudent for us to say, this administration, we did not have this type of calamity, this type of catastrophic economic and pandemic uh, uh, situation during, the, during any previous administration. The, the, the race relations, like you say, before our friends were silent. They, 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 they weren't silent, but they could, you can't legislate against how a person feels about you. If they feel racist in their heart, if they feel like they have some prejudice in their heart, the, 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 the civil rights bill, no, it didn't negate that. What it said is that the law will punish you if you exercise that type of prejudice and, and, and take advantage of, of a victim, um, whether employment or housing or whatever, those type of things will have a legal uh, consequence. But you can remain just as racist in your heart as you've always been, but you better learn how to hide it. This particular president 
has emboldened, he has encouraged them to to end that suppressing suppressive uh, type of feeling, that innate racist feeling that they had, and to come out with it. Because he said, I will protect you. I'll pay your legal fees. I'll pardon you. Yeah. And so they yeah. feel like it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So the, the, the and this might uh, take us on uh, this next, uh, I want to say topic within a topic, um, is my wrap-up topic, but I know it's something that we'll discuss in depth for a little. And you know, I felt that despite what the focus was uh, for this episode of you know where politics and race meet, um, in a general way, I could not um, end the episode without speaking further about the current climate and the Jacob Blake situation. And um, before I get into that part of it with you, I read a, a news brief today, and I want to read it back um, uh, for your benefit and my viewers. I won't say which media outlet it was, but it says, a man who witnesses described as being part of a vigilante militia group with a long gun Raisinly walked down the street in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Tuesday night and began firing his weapon at people protesting the police shooting of Jacob Blake, killing two and incredibly walking right past a swarm of cops who let him go into the night. The protest centered around the courthouse and got out of hand as with water bottles, rocks and fireworks aimed at police. The police then fired rubber bullets and tear gas into the crowd, which then dispersed and moved several blocks. That's when the white vigilante appears on video with his gun. He reportedly had already shot someone several blocks away, and he was being chased by protesters who were trying to subdue him. The vigilante falls to the ground and he's being cha- as he's being chased and then begins unloading his weapon, striking and killing two people. And then the unthinkable happens. As police swarm the area in patrol cars and fortified vehicles, the vigilante, gun clearly visible around his chest, puts his hands up in the ear. The police vehicles all pass him as the crowd screams, he's the shooter. It's a stunning contrast. The white vigilante posed a clear and present danger, even if cops didn't know he was the shooter. Yet Jacob Blake, an unarmed black man, was shot in the back seven times as he tried to get in his car. Jacob is now paralyzed from the waist down. End of quote. Now, I saw the video. And I got to be honest with you, when I first saw the video, I didn't know what was going on. Um, I still don't know all the facts, but I was told, from, and, and any one of my audience or you yourself can correct me, I was told that there was some altercation going on between two ladies, and Jacob Blake was actually there to to stop the altercation, to, to part the, the situation. When the cops got there, whatever verbally transpired or whatever, he felt the need to remove himself from, from, the, from the, you know, the presence of these police. What I saw on the video was I couldn't make out to the corner right to the screen, but it looked like it was, I could see two police clearly, and it looked like there were three. Now, 
Three trained police officers, obviously. I saw Jacob Blake walk around his car, open his door. And if, you know, first thing came to mind was if he was a threat, they're trained. So with three of them, if he was a true threat, you know, they could have tackled him. What I saw was him get in the car, the officer grab him by the back of his shirt and start firing. Now, you know, let's, let's play devil's advocate. Let's, let's be really extreme here. How many times are you going to shoot? I couldn't believe. I mean, anybody who sees this, if you're a human being, and I'll say this to all my audience, I don't care what race, creed, or color you are. If you're a human being and you watch that video of him being held by his shirt and just shot after shot after shot going into his back, this is a man who, as at least what I know so far, you know, he, no, nobody called the cops on him. And, and even if they did, I mean, we see so many videos. Uh, somebody sent me one the other day of, of, of a white man. I got to say this without prejudice, but the white man with a knife and the cops were telling him, drop the knife and he was coming at them. And they, they spent the longest while I think eventually they used the vehicle to, to, to run into him, to knock him to his feet, and they tackled him. Here was a man who had no weapon versus the protests the night or two after, whatever it is, where a man with a weapon does not even catch the attention of the police. What is wrong here? Well, uh, what's wrong is that the our melanated skin is a more dangerous, appears to be, or is perceived to be a more dangerous weapon than a long gun carried by a white man. So that's what makes this race racially motivated injustice more pernicious, more insidious than what is colloquially called black-on-black crime. Because if my skin, if the color of my skin is the threat, I cannot remove that. This is why it's asinine to even talk about blue lives matter, because that's an occupation. Me being black is not an occupation. It's not a temporary thing. I have to carry this for my entire life. And if your perception of me is that because of the complexion of my skin, that makes me innately more violent and predisposed to cause some kind of harm or terrorize you, then I'm not going to be safe from the cops or the robbers. And this is what I think Doc Rivers, Coach Doc Rivers from the NBA, was alluding to as well um is we can't run from who we are and we don't want to run from who we are um we just want equal treatment we don't want to you don't see white men women or whatever because this happened it happens male female our race has been decimated by on both sexes uh, you know, from Sandra Bland to going back to Eleanor Bumpers. What other 67-year-old white woman do you know 
uh, was shot down because she had a knife in her apartment, a 67-year-old woman and a bunch of trained cops. And that's the thing. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. When they are trained, I can't put them on the same... Uh, uh, I can't draw an equivalency between the victim and the cop or the one being detained and the cop. They didn't... These victims didn't spend six months or whatever time it takes to get through the police academy. They are not professionally trained on how to comport themselves properly when they are detained by the cops. So a lot of times, and that's not unique to us, that's something that's prevalent. You can go to YouTube and see a plethora of whites in similar situations. And they are, they become belligerent with the cops. They're uncooperative, everything, and they're not met with the same fate. How can law enforcement, the police officers, are just law enforcement? They're not the judge, the jury, or the executioner. They have not been sworn in to have those kind of responsibilities. So it's never appropriate, regardless of what the circumstances leading up to this situation, because I, I agree with uh, uh, Ben Crump on this, that we have to wait until all the facts in, in terms of the other stuff, whether or not he belonged there, you know, because I heard something else that, uh, that the attorney general from Wisconsin said that uh, there was a male that had an uh, order of protection against uh, or the female had an order of protection against a male, but they didn't specify if it was him or not, Jacob Blake. But the point is, we know what we saw. And just based on what we saw, as is the case in all of these type of incidents, if it was the opposite, that person would already be in jail. Just based yeah. on what we saw. And then let a jury <laughs> of his peers <laughs> you know, figure out whether or not it, it was a legal thing or justified shooting or whatever. But that person would be arrested on the spot. So, yeah. But now, again, time to put politics back into it. Now you see the vigilante. Uh, this guy, uh, uh, he walked away. He was given a bottle of water and he was allowed to walk away and return to his home state and wasn't picked up until a day later. So, you know, there's, there's, they don't see us. And this is not just here, because going back to your question about the Black Lives Matter movement, this has impacted the entire world. There's Black Lives Matter movement going on in, in, uh, uh, in throughout Africa, uh, where, where you know, whites are still dominating, you know, under neo-colonialism. There's, it's going on throughout Europe, you know, the, the Moroccans, the fighting, uh, the French for their independence and stuff. There's Black Lives Matter movements all over the world now, throughout this hemisphere, in Venezuela, in Haiti, in, in, in uh, uh, because it's against injustice. Even if Blacks are the ones in charge of the government, there still has to be, you don't see in Haiti, you don't see in any dominant uh, majority black country in the world where the police are doing this to its white minority citizens. So it's a mindset 
that has de- caused everyone to just devalue our worth as a people, to devalue our lives. And it doesn't matter if it comes from someone who looks like us or someone who doesn't. But the thing is that that doesn't mean that you can be allowed to do this with impunity. And I, I don't want to wait on God, God's judgment. No. We, we don't have that privilege. We don't have that prerogative. Why should you? If you're going to be a law and order president, then execute the law. The same Justice Department that uh, Obama had there with, uh, uh, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Lynch, and um, prior to her, her uh, what's, what's the brother's name? Um, it'll come to me. But when they, were, when they were in the Justice Department and Ferguson went down, then he created a whole task force and stuff to look into these precincts all over. They even took over the, the uh, police department in, in Ferguson, uh, the feds. So, you know, as, do, if you're a law enforcement president, then enforce the law equally across the board. There shouldn't be special privileges and exonerations and pardons and all that for, for people just based on uh, the color of their skin. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, it's, 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 it is, you know, it is a simple thing that, you know, that when you think about it, it's broken down simply as whenever a black and brown person, you know, is in the wrong place at the wrong time, they're guilty. It doesn't matter, you know, if they just got there, if they had nothing to do with it, you know, once they're on the scene, they are seen as guilty and we have to struggle to say that we're not. Um, you know, as, as I wrap this up, um, first, let me say again, thank you for being a repeat guest. Um, and even though this is your second time, I would, because of your knowledge and your, your depth of your knowledge, I would, you know, you are a great resource for my audience and for myself. So, you know, um, second time must definitely not be the last time. Um, there's so much to talk about and so much to uh, keep talking about to keep this this movement going. So, thank you so much. I know that it's pretty late and and you know it's past your bedtime, <laughs> but um, I thank you for joining me um, and appreciate you being here. And I know my audience does as well. Um, and yeah, there'll be more for us to come back on. I'm sure I'm going to get emails and messages like I do demanding your return. Um, as I did the last well, time. It, it, may, may, may I say this in closing just quickly? The, the, um, I, 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 I'm, I feel like Doc Rivers because this, this, yeah, this, this is my passion. This is, this is just, I just have such a visceral reaction every time I see these type of atrocities and injustices uh, committed. But I'm, I'm like Doc Rivers. Can't I just be a coach? Can't, can't you interview me about Cardi B's new song or Diana Ross? Or but the very fact that this is the dominant conversation 
of our lifetime, um, then it shows you that there's something really wrong here. You know, I have to have this conversation with my kids all the time when we can't just talk about, you know, entertainment stuff without, well, what do you think? Or somebody sending me a WhatsApp link. What do you think about this? It's like, you know, and, and not to mention during the pandemic, you, you can't go to church. You can't, you, you can't go to the hospital to visit the mental. I'm glad you did the show on the mental illness because people are stressed. People are, and we don't even know how to process this. What's going on right now? LeBron James said it and Doc Rivers said it. We're afraid. But it's one thing to just be afraid of street violence. It's another thing to be afraid of the cops and the robbers, the thugs and the so-called good guys. That's a whole different story. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, it's, but um, thankfully we have the ability to have this platform to, you know, to to send a message and, and, and to share the conversation with thousands of others who feel the same way and, and who feel empowered by hearing it and hearing our discussions. There is a specific uh, criminal justice attorney who that I've reached out to to invite her on the show. I won't say her name. But hopefully she hears this podcast and agrees to come on because I think that she'll add you know, power as, as you know, the criminal justice attorney that she is. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm, I mentioned also in my previous podcast that I've written a, or I wrote a few compositions many years ago and I've been pulling them out and dusting them off. And as we close this episode, I want to read, um, end the episode by reading one of the compositions entitled Not Guilty. So before I do that, I want to thank you again for coming on the show and uh, looking forward to, you know, even another episode with you. And here's my composition, Not Guilty. As the sunlight brightens my world, it signifies a new day. Another day in my life that is all but a dream. I struggle to awaken to a new place of hope, but the burden I carry is winning the fight of life. This is now my world, and this place is my home. I cover my eyes with the palms of my hands and I see the vision like it was yesterday. As I turn to my left, I see my family waving with joyous anticipation of my return. As I look ahead, I see the beautiful scenery of nature that provides my path to my destination. But as I look to my right, I see chaos and confusion and then darkness. As I raise my head, I can feel the pain that must be etched on my face. And I see the repeated pounding of a gavel and hear the resounding echoes of guilty. Somewhere, somewhere between the joy of life and my anticipated return lies the abduction of my freedom and the reality that is now mine. I was accused, tried, convicted, and condemned for an act of violence that had apparently come from my peaceful soul. And no matter how much I deny the crime and plead my innocence, my dream screams no and condemns me to my eternity of entrapment. Many years now have now been stolen, 
and my friends and family have faded from my dream. Only silhouettes of their presence remain, their sense a distant memory, their faces unrecognizable. Apparently their promises of freedom, their promises to awaken me from this dream no longer have enough meaning to get in the way of life. So I dream on, alone, waiting for a shout or a shudder that will stop the nightmare, or at least allow me the choice of changing my dream. If this happens, I may have a chance and maybe a new audience, a chance to grab their attention, to hypnotize them long enough so that they may become a part of my dream. All of this just because I'm dying to reveal my secret, to utter two simple words, not guilty. Zinger snaps. That was powerful. Wow. say a very special thank you to my guest, Mr. Matanya Gladden, for joining me for this episode and for adding his wisdom and knowledge to a very important conversation. As always, I thank my audience and my supporters and remind you that you can catch up on any episode via your favorite podcast app, or you can head over to the website at www.247realtalk.net. If you'd like to send me a message, or you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net. Until the next time, take care of yourselves and each other.